It's Tuesday, August 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After five years of investigations and protests, New York City Police Commissioner James O'Neill fired Daniel Pantaleo, who was the officer involved in the 2014 chokehold death of Eric Garner. O'Neill said that using the banned chokehold was a mistake that any officer could have made in the heat of an arrest, but he can no longer effectively serve as a New York City police officer. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for more on this decision. Next, we speak to Joe Barnett, managing editor of Budget and Tax News, for a look into red light cameras in the country. While people should not be running red lights, are these cameras increasing safety and causing fewer accidents? The results are mixed. Some evidence suggests that increasing the time of the yellow light may be more helpful, and enforcement of red light citations is not always the easiest. Finally, in recent years, more young adults are continuing to see their pediatricians well into their mid-20s. People are on their parents' insurance longer and feel more comfortable seeing the same doctor they have known since they were kids. But how long can you sit in that Candyland waiting room geared towards toddlers? Karen Chesler, contributor to The Washington Post, joins us for when it's time to look for another doctor. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The unintended consequence of Mr. Garner's death must have a consequence of its own. Therefore, I agree with the Deputy Commissioner of Trials legal findings and recommendations. It is clear that Daniel Pantaleo can no longer effectively serve as a New York City police officer. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thank you for joining us, Victor. Thank you. After five years of investigations and protests, the New York City Police Department fired the officer that was involved in the 2014 chokehold death of Eric Garner. Obviously, everybody has seen the video, knows the dying gasps of Eric Garner. We're saying, I can't breathe. This is really what sparked a big debate over use of force by police. It was also a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement. The police commissioner, James P. O'Neill, dismissed Pantaleo two weeks after the police administrative judge found him guilty violating a department ban on chokeholds. If you remember, Eric Garner was outside of his storefront. He was confronted by police officers for selling loose, untaxed cigarettes. They called them Lucy's, and everything kind of devolved from there. In the press conference, James P. O'Neill said that it is clear that Daniel Pantaleo can no longer effectively serve as a New York City police officer. Victor, start us off with some reaction to this decision. Uh, well, I mean, the reaction really depends on who you're talking to. Eric Garner's daughter, Emerald Snipes Garner, thanked Commissioner O'Neill for, quote, doing the right thing. She later went on to say, I should not be here standing with my brother fatherless. Uh, he's fired, but the fight is not over. And Al Sharpton, who has made a comment, also said Pantaleo will go home a terminated man, but this family had to go to a funeral. And Al Sharpton said this too: the people who wanted Pantaleo to be fired are more relieved than celebratory. They're relatively happy with the decision, but they're not jumping for joy at what exactly happened. Interesting comments also came from the president of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, that's the police union, Patrick Lynch. This had to deal with how police officers would feel after this decision. He basically told everybody that police officers feel like the commissioner doesn't have their back anymore. It's also important to note that people who are part of the union think that this is more of a political move than an actual justice move, especially with 
Mayor de Blasio running for president in the upcoming election, they think that there's a lot of pressure that was put on O'Neill to make this decision to eventually fire Pantaleo. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of outcry. And uh, James O'Neill, the police commissioner, he even sounded like he struggled with it also. He said, if I were still a cop, I would probably be mad at me too. But he said this was the right decision, especially after the uh, investigation that the police did. Uh, The judge ruled that he used an illegal chokehold. And that's where really everything around this is centered. Here's James O'Neill talking about how things devolved and that chokehold specifically. The person videotaping the episode later testified at the NYPD trial that he thought both men would crash through the glass. It is at that point in the video that Officer Pantaleo is seen with his hands clasped together and his left forearm pressed against Mr. Garner's neck in what constitutes a chokehold. The NYPD court ruled that while certainly not preferable, that hold was acceptable during that brief moment in time because the risk of falling through the window was so high. But that exigent circumstance no longer existed, the court found, when Officer Pantaleo and Mr. Garner moved to the ground. So it's all about the chokehold. That's obviously what triggered the asthma attack that Eric Garner had where where he later died. Through the uh, investigation, they said that Pantaleo initially tried to use two approved restraint tactics on Garner eventually wrapping his arm around his neck for about seven seconds when they struggled in front of that glass window and then they fell to the floor. But that's when, I don't know if he readjusted or in the shuffle, that's when the chokehold went right up against his neck. Pantaleo's lawyer said that he tried to use a, a tactic known as the seatbelt maneuver. What, what does that look like, Victor? Yeah, well, I, I think first it's important to note that, A, the issue with the chokehold wasn't with the initial grabbing it's the minute they got on the ground is when he didn't move to a more safer procedure of restraining him the new york times did a video with a retired police officer on proper takedown techniques the seatbelt method is under the arm up through the shoulder right so right arm left shoulder and you restrain them that way yeah and you bring them down to the ground and the video does show that it started off that way but as you said, once they hit the ground and they, in the struggle, it quickly moved to uh, being a chokehold around his neck. And that, that unfortunately, is what did it all. And in that video that I was talking about, every illegal way of restraining someone was right around the trachea, right around the right. neck. And every good way of doing it was chest, shoulder, leg yeah. issues. So you don't put pressure on the critical breathing parts of a person, of a a suspect or something. Exactly. The police union and the lawyers for Officer Pantaleo said that they're going to appeal this. They're going to try to get his job back. I mean, it's a tough situation. How does that guy ever really go back into the field and and be an effective police officer? Uh, You know, everybody knows who he is, uh, but that's what they said they're going to be doing. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. And they found that if you lengthen the timing of the yellow light by one second, it reduced traffic violations by 90%. Joining us now is Joe Barnett, managing editor of Budget and Tax News and contributor to The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Glad to be here. Thank you. We're going to be talking about something that I know a lot of people really hate, these pesky red light cameras 
Just as a quick story, I went through this a long time ago in Los Angeles is where I live. The city council there, after some time, voted to just shut them down. They were not being enforced. People were ignoring the citations. They just really never kind of got off the ground with it. The majority of these photo tickets weren't even people running through red lights. They were people making illegal right turns, getting flashed by the camera. So it just became a huge problem and uh, they shut them down a long time ago. But I saw your article on the Hill, red light cameras undermining the rule of law. And it kind of struck me. There's, this is still an ongoing problem in Kent, Washington. They have a pilot program going on right now. They caught almost 2,300 drivers running red lights or possibly right turns also in their grace period time. So this is still a thing that a lot of cities, a lot of states are going through with this. Tell us a little bit more about it. At least 24 states allow them or have them at the current time. There are three Australian companies that make these systems for photo enforcement of red lights, right turns, as you mentioned, and also speeding traffic enforcement. And they, of course, have been lobbying all over the country for that. It's an ongoing issue. Ohio, just a few months ago, passed a law banning or at least phasing out the cameras in that state, city of Toledo, has gotten an injunction against the state law because they want the money. In most places, these things are just civil fines, which makes the enforcement and collection really difficult. As I said, that's kind of what happened in Los Angeles. But tell us what yeah. some of the studies say about this. Because, you know, the the reasoning or, you know, the underlying thing that a lot of people say is it's going to improve safety. But what do the studies say to that effect? The most credible study that I've seen by Case Western University researchers who analyzed 12 years of data on red light cameras in Houston, Texas, they found that while the cameras did reduce one of the accidents that does occur when people run red lights, which is called T-boning, they found there was some reduction in that. But there was also an increase in rear-end accidents, so there was no overall increase in safety or reduction in traffic accidents. And one of the things that may be affecting that is that in order to catch people, the red light cameras really want the yellow light to be really short. And they found that if you lengthen the timing of the yellow light by one second, it reduced traffic violations by 90%. So what has occurred where these have been implemented is that the yellow light is really short. And, right. uh, and in many cases, shorter than it used to be because they've reduced the yellow light time in order to catch people. The other thing that they say, I guess, is that all way red lights uh, also help improve safety there. So that basically means the entire intersection is all red and people can do like the diagonal crosswalk, things like that. That helps reduce uh, some of this stuff as well. No doubt. And uh, the traffic lights, the uh, traffic management system is really the way to go to improve safety. So in a lot of these cases, it's obviously a lot about the money. I know these uh, you know, local cities and states, they get a lot of revenue from these things if they follow through with the enforcement, obviously. That's true. In Texas, where we introduced the red light cameras a few years ago, initially they, they faced that same problem you mentioned in California, that 
they couldn't enforce it. You know, here's some third party law firm demanding you pay up this administrative fee. Well, the camera companies went back to the legislature and said, well, hey, we need some enforcement mechanism. So what they proposed was that you couldn't re-register your car in your your lo- locality unless you had paid these fines, although it was an administrative fee here in Texas, not something you could take to traffic court. So they proposed to withhold registration fees and our local tax assessor collector here in Tarrant County, which is Fort Worth and Arlington, Texas, and many other communities. Now, Congressman Ron Wright, who was the tax assessor collector, refused to enforce the state law that said they could withhold your car registration. And he's now in Congress, and he's taken that idea to Congress and introduced legislation to withhold highway funds from states that don't give people more opportunity for due process and notification in these traffic enforcement. Joe Barnett, Managing Editor of Budget and Tax News, contributor to The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Each room has a theme. He said it's pink and it has these sort of dancing candies on the wall. I think he's in his last year of college. And that seems to be sort of the demarcation point for the patients themselves. I mean, for the doctors as well. But yeah, he's, I think he's had enough of Candyland. Joining us now is Karen Chesler, contributor to the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Karen. You're very welcome. We're going to be talking about healthcare. We're going to be talking about seeing your doctor, but more specifically, young adults seeing their pediatrician well into their 20s. The big question is how old is too old to continue seeing your pediatrician? That age right now is kind of about 26, although it can go, you know, give or take a few years with the Affordable Care Act that went into place. Kids can stay on their parents' insurance all the way up until age 26. So people were just sticking with their pediatricians a lot longer. Tell us a little bit about this. Well, I mean, it's, it's exactly as you say. Uh, the longer they are on their parents' insurance, the, the more comfortable they are just staying with their childhood pediatrician. You know, it's someone they're used to, they know, the pediatrician knows them, they know the family, so everyone's just more comfortable. You talk to a lot of people who are, as I said, well into their 20s now that are still going to see their pediatrician. How are they feeling about this? I, I think one, one in particular said, yeah, I'm getting too old for this when I'm sitting in the Candyland waiting room. Yeah, he said there's this room. It's uh, the Candyland room. Each room has a theme, but that was the one he told me about. And he said it's pink and it has these sort of dancing candies on the wall. And I think he's in his last year of college. And that seems to be sort of the demarcation point for the patients themselves. I mean, for the doctors as well. But yeah, he's, I think he's had enough of Candyland. You spoke to a number of pediatricians as well. How do they feel about seeing their patients, you know, as they're really becoming adults? I was sort of surprised. I thought they were going to have a problem with it. You know, I want people to leave earlier, like say, you know, around 20. And that wasn't really the case. Most seemed to be comfortable through college. They didn't really see a need to kick people out and make them find a new doctor while they were still in college. And, you know, especially if they're just home for a couple of weeks, why should they have to find someone new or or go to urgent care when they did have a pediatrician who knew them? Yeah. And that seemed to be the prevailing opinion is that, well, I've been seeing this person since they were a kid. Uh, I know them. I know the family, all this stuff. 
And it's like, why would I push them out right now? Although there's not a, a serious problem with seeing a patient into their adulthood, but pediatricians are specialized doctors. They deal with children. And once you start getting older, you start having adult illnesses, adult diseases. And that's not something that they're usually trained for. Yeah. So it seemed to be, it seemed like there was an upside and a downside. You know, that that is the downside. You know, these are, there are adult diseases like um, hypertension and type 2 diabetes and high cholesterol. So, I mean, the downside would be a, a pediatrician may not be as equipped to handle that kind of stuff. One of them I spoke to said if she does, you know, come up against anything she's not comfortable with, she will, you know, refer the patients to a specialist. But there is an upside, and that is pediatricians are sometimes more, I don't want to say thorough because that's sort of insulting to um, just a general practitioner for adults, but they do tend to spend more time with their patients. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and maybe part of that is they do know them longer. What does the American Academy of Pediatrics say about this? Because they did issue a policy statement about this because it's been happening a lot more recently that patients have been seeing their doctors, you know, into their 20s. Yeah, they were seeing age uh, rise that people were staying with their pediatricians. But what they were also seeing was um, insurers and healthcare providers starting to draw these arbitrary lines in the sand as to what age you should leave your pediatrician. And they didn't think that was right. They thought it was very much a case-by-case basis. So they came out with a statement that, that basically said that, it, that it should be the patient who decides and in conjunction, in conjunction with the physician. And the two of them, uh, and actually in their statement, they say they must take into account the physical and psychosocial needs of the patient and the abilities of the pediatric provider to meet those needs. One of the other things, too, that was interesting in your article is, you know, I think a lot of people initially think, well... Uh, you can stay on longer on your parents' insurance. That's obviously the top line. That's why a lot of people are staying there. But, you know, the extending of life expen- expectancy with those that have chronic childhood in- illnesses has also made people stay with their pediatricians longer. Congenital heart issues, uh, cystic fibrosis, you know, childhood diabetes as kind of the common theme. We've been working with these kids and these people for so long. We know them and we know how to treat these things. The fact that these children are, are living longer, I mean, it, it's created sort of um, a new frontier because in some cases, having come from childhood, these illnesses aren't necessarily things that adult specialists or specialists who deal solely with adults would be used to. So there's th- these particular cases, they're bringing their pediatricians up with them or their specialists up with them because these are specialists who deal with children as they turn into adults. It's just that they weren't getting as old. These children weren't getting as old before. Right. But so now it, it, it is a, sort of a gray area uh, how to handle this population. For the most part, though, it just seems like it's, it's okay. The pediatricians are okay with it uh, for themselves. The patients obviously want to keep seeing somebody they're comfortable with. You just have to get over those awkward waiting room moments. Yeah. Some of the pediatricians are, are trying to accommodate those patients. You know, they don't just have tiny chairs and highlights magazines. One pediatrician was telling me he, he'll have like a, a certain nights that he'll see his older patients, um, maybe so that they don't have to feel so old. Karen Chesler, contributor to The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.